Good morning, Calvary family. I invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word today, which is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This can be found on page 964 in the Pew Bible. And just a moment of real talk. Um, I always feel that when I'm selected to read scripture, it's always the thing that God's working on my heart the most with, and this is no exception. So if, like me, God is doing a work in your heart on forgiveness, this scripture is for you. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Praise to him who removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Praise to the one who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Praise to the spirit who effectively applies the work of redemption in Christ to all of us, giving honor to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit with thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald and the elders for this opportunity to share with you today. And to all of you, good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you guys said good morning back. The morning crowd wasn't quite with the good morning thing. I don't know. You know, that makes you feel like you're going to be swimming uphill when you preach. So thank you for that. I really appreciate uh, uh, that. It is so good to be with all of you here um, this morning and to rejoice with all of the saints of God and you who are a guest here today today. I'm grateful for your presence. Uh, I'm going to pause here uh, to pray, and then we're going to go back right into looking together at God's Word. Let us pray. Father, now might you be kind to provide healing and vindication and wisdom and hope and encouragement and conviction and mercy to all who hear. May your mercy be to the degree that someone would meet Christ for the first time today in truth. May it be to the degree that others holding deep pain will experience great joy in you. So now, Father, give us ears to hear by your Spirit and give us power to preach by your Spirit. Do it for your great name's sake in Oak Park and all over Chicago. Chicagoland, and to the furthest parts of the earth, places where people still have never heard the name of Christ. Please do a work graciously through us, God, so that the name of Christ is magnified everywhere. We give you thanks. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The resignation of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson demonstrates how difficult it can be to survive an era when your detractors are after you. Last Thursday, after many of his party members had tended their resignations at 10 Downing Street, Mr. Johnson agreed to step down in the fall, not being able to sustain his position politically. Many would attribute the Prime Minister's fall from grace to his appointment of a cabinet member who had allegations of misconduct in his sexual record. However, Martha Gill, a political journalist and columnist for the Evening Standard, proposes that it was Boris Johnson's apology that led to his downfall. That is, Prior to apologizing for his role in this latest scandal, Prime Minister Johnson had the practice of half-heartedly expressing regret while avoiding admitting personal failure. However, here, the admittance of personal failure threw gas on the fires of dissent, and the apology was followed by scores of resignations within his own party. Boris Johnson is not alone in finding results opposite to what most hope an apology and a turning of behavior will do like the spouse or parent who finally awakens to his or her errors and comes with apologies to save a doomed relationship. Often apologies and drastic change are not enough to regain a relationship with those offended. Bitterness makes you tell the culprits, you can keep your bleep bleepin' apologies, gifts, and religious conversion, expletives deleted. We can't say those words in here. What should be our practice when a church body encounters a member seeking restoration to the local fellowship after being disciplined for an offense to the body and to God? Can we simply forgive and forget as one congregation once told me? Or do we tighten the screws in a way that the offender can never be whole among us again? Today, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11 address restoring one who has caused pain to a local congregation. Rightly so, the person has come under discipline, meaning the church has entered a process to attempt to bring the person to a place of acknowledgement of wrongdoing and repentance. But the question for Corinth is, now what? Before going into the text, let me tell you what a blessing it is to come to this passage when there is no known or obvious case of discipline-worthy sin in view before us as a congregation. Thank you, Jesus. 
we get to consider this passage with strong winds of holy community in the sails and not with the headwinds of a divisive, ugly, disciplined case coming against us. If there is such a case, it is in confidential stewardship of the elders and has not risen to the level of need to bring it to staff, deacons, and the full congregation. Either way, today's sermon is not reactive to anything taking place here at Calvary. It's just the next passage we're on. So instead of being reactive, I hope to be proactive in telling us how to honor God in our restorative practices as a church and in life, following the pattern of instructions Paul gives here. I also hope to give wisdom to what to do when you think it is time to be the whistleblower in a congregation so that you do not destroy the work of God with your righteous zeal. First, restoration involves forgiving and encouraging like Christ. I'm in verses 5 through 7. Paul instructs the Corinthians assembly to forgive the offender in verse 7. Proper forgiveness, however, Christ-like Forgiveness is not as simple as overlooking wrongdoing and turning a blind eye to real offense. Look at all of the things that Paul says in accompanying his instruction on forgiveness. He, let's consider five things that Paul says. So some of you have been here for a while. You know me. This is point number one. It has five things under it. That's what I mean. Okay. <laughs> One, Paul acknowledges that real pain has happened by the offense. He says, if anyone has caused you pain, he uses the word pain to talk about what has happened in the Corinthians congregation. Two, Paul recognizes that the congregation has been hurt. This is keeping with Paul's understanding of the mysterious union of believers as a body, and as a temple of God in 1 Corinthians. That is, Paul taught that we are united in Christ supernaturally by the working of the Spirit, invisibly, eternally, and such that we function like a body that needs all parts to work properly. That body rejoices when a part is exalted, and it hurts when a part of the body hurts. And Paul tells Corinth that we are a corporate dwelling of the Spirit of God, and we are not simply a catch of loosely tied together believers. This offender has hurt a member of the body, of the temple, so that body temple is involved in the discipline and restoration process. It's not about Paul. Paul avoids the personality cult ethos that is so common to modern evangelicalism. And he turns this issue away from himself. Instead of allowing the people to say, that person hurt Paul. Paul 
has them say, that person has hurt our assembly in hurting Paul. Three, Paul minimizes the offense now that they are at the stage of restoration. He says, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused pain not to me so much, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, he says, to all of you. That little phrase in there, not to exaggerate, not to expand, however it says it in your translation, is Paul's way of saying the offense no longer looms large now that the discipline process has worked. He says, I'm not going to make a big deal out of what has happened anymore because that's gone. Let's talk about the restoration process now. Four, Paul trusts the working of God sovereignly in the majority opinion. Whatever the majority in the Corinthian assembly decided, Paul says that meets with his approval. The New Testament will develop the idea of elders leading congregations, even though Paul does not speak of it here. But in decisions of restoration and forgiveness that are public, and require corporate input in the discipline, the, leader would, the leaders would be right to return it to the congregation for their consideration. And five, Paul appoints an end point for discipline and a starting point for effective forgiveness and encouragement. When Paul uses the word forgive in each of his cases in verses 5 through 7, he uses a term that means to give freely or graciously. He's really saying, if you give grace, I give grace. And when the majority gives grace, I approve of the grace being given. I am giving grace to the one who offended. Paul has in mind the grace of of God in Christ toward us. For Paul, at some point, an offender, an offender who has been repentant, needs to have his pain end and encouragement needs to begin. The person is still a Christ-purchased sister or brother in the Lord. If punishment continues, the discipline can become overwhelming, says Paul, and lead to sorrow about the body's treatment of the offender. In bringing us to places of repentance or brokenness, Christ does not intend to leave us in perpetual sorrow. The brokenness we experience in coming to Christ or the brokenness we experience in growing in Christ is to lead us to joy in him. Yet, I'm sure each of us knows someone who has experienced a discipline or penalty process that went overboard on the punitive aspects of the process. We know someone who has experienced a grounding that was too long for whatever offense took place in the home, or someone who has experienced a legal judgment that was way too harsh for whatever the perceived crime was, or 
an occupational correction or demotion that made the point and made the point again, again, and then some more. The local body of Christ should offer something vastly different than the world offers because we have been given something vastly different in Jesus. Where sin abounded in every one of us, Paul teaches, grace abounded even more, says Paul, to restore this person who has been offended or who has offended and now has been repentant and is need of restoration, forgiving and encouraging like Christ with grace is what Corinth and what we will need to do. Restoration involves loving with obedience to Christ also. In verses 8 through 9, Paul says, I beg you to affirm your love for him or reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You can feel the emotional urgency in Paul begging the Corinthians, pleading with them to take back the offender who has been disciplined, who has turned from error or sin, acknowledged wrongdoing, but now is susceptible to being overwhelmed with sorrow. Paul thinks of the love that should flow from Christ through us as a priority, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The full congregation at Corinth needs to express affection, cherishing of the offender, and welcoming of the offender into regular body life without repeatedly referencing the resolved offense. The member should put into the past Feelings of rejection, dislike, disgust, and even hatred. Going forward, the very thing that we have experienced from Christ now and will experience for all eternity is what the body should communicate toward this former offender now being restored. We want one being restored to experience the fullness of the love of Christ. The very thought of withholding affection and encouragement from a disciplined, repentant member of the local assembly is foreign to Paul's concept of walking in a manner that pleases the Lord. Now, to grasp this, we might have to change our images of responding to contemporary offenders in other arenas. I have an example for one. When thinking of restoring a brother or sister, we cannot think of our gag reflex response to keeping former sex offenders from living in our neighborhoods, away from our children's schools, parks, and playgrounds. You know how we are. If our children go to play on a street and we know that there's a registered sex offender down there, we say, please don't go play down in that street. You know there's a former sex offender there. Mom, the sex offender lives a whole mile away down that street. I don't care. I don't want you on that street. That's how we think. Don't anyone go anywhere near that street. Well, that's the wrong image for restoring someone to the body of Christ. Instead, 
Consider that some of us know someone who had an incident of petty theft as a teenager. The person repaid or restored the stolen goods, apologized to his or her own parents and to the owners of the goods, did community service and a period of probation, has never stolen again, and has stayed gainfully employed for the next 20 or 30 additional years, we would never think of saying toward that person or about that person, let's hide the nice patio furniture when he or she comes over so it doesn't get stolen. We would never think that way. And we probably do not think of keeping that person from our closest circle of friends or our family. That person is probably in our closest circle of friends or family. That's simply our friend who made a mistake, accepted the penalty for it, paid for it, turned from it, and does not wish for anyone to keep reliving the incident. I bet that friend was at your last birthday celebration. For some of you, that friend grilled steaks with you this summer and had margaritas with you, if you drink margaritas. <laughs> Our idea of obedient, reaffirming love should look like a town working together to get every home rebuilt, every store fully functioning and thriving after being hit by an EF3 tornado. The whole town comes together and they bring all their working equipment and they pitch together on food and they support one another financially and the whole town prospers from the rebuilding and is filled with happiness from the togetherness fostered by the municipal-wide joint effort to make something great even better than it was before. Restoration should work like that in the body of Christ because restoration involves loving people in obedience to Christ. Maybe most importantly in this passage, Paul warns us that restoration involves avoiding the designs of Satan. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul thinks of restoring people who have brought harm to the church and individual members um, at the same time that he thinks of the invisible war that is always at play in redemptive history. In the evil one's plan for dominion of the earth, as our shepherd has taught us through looking at the great works of Irenaeus, as the, as the enemy fights for dominion of the earth, he will take advantage of any little opportunity we give him to destroy our pursuit of righteousness. He will use the pride of one too young to have stewardship of shepherding God's people which is why Paul will say in 1 Timothy 3, not a new convert can be considered for a pastor, lest he fall into a snare and trap of the devil. 
The evil one will use the failure of two parties to address anger in an offense in a timely manner, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down in your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And the evil one, the enemy, the adversary, will use the failure to forgive and embrace a sufficiently disciplined sinner to destroy a congregation. Paul is thinking about Christ. When Paul speaks of accepting the Corinthians assembly's forgiveness as his own forgiveness, he is thinking about Christ working through the body. When Paul makes a hypothetical situation saying, if I have forgiven anyone, as if Paul cannot even remember the pain that someone brought toward him. Paul is being gracious, modeling the effectual relational forgetting that Christ-like forgiveness demands. And when Paul looks to the day the Corinthians will stand before Jesus in his very presence, he is putting the act of restoration in the context of glorifying God for all eternity. We cannot simply think of earthly matters and feelings. Everything we do as believers is about the glory of God in Christ to the ends of the earth for all eternity. When the Corinthians stand before Christ and Christ recounts their approach toward this repentant member, Paul wants the Corinthians to have done all to please Jesus, including clearing the accounts and reaffirming the love for the former offending member. All this thinking is necessary to minimize the influence of the enemy within the congregation at Corinth and within the congregation at Oak Park. People who are overwhelmed by a lack of grace are easy prey for being turned from the church and or for becoming leaders in the anti-church PR campaign. When we listen to the stories of deconstructing Christians, many of them have episodes of evangelical school experiences that seem fundamentalistic. They speak of Christian homes in which there was little freedom to enjoy many of the things their other Christian friends enjoyed, let alone their unbelieving friends enjoyed. Or they speak of church lives in which the practices or expectations in a congregation felt like straitjackets on them. Everyone deconstructing is not doing so over concerns about hypocrisy or our positions on race, gender, and sexual orientation. Many are deconstructing over merciless church experiences including discipline experiences that harm their families and make them can carry pains about church. The adversary takes advantage of the vulnerable hearts and minds of people who feel believers are not showing the grace of God in Christ. Right restorative practices avoid leaving this door open for the adversary we must fill that space with grace. 
Now, if you would, please allow me to speak from my heart as I move toward the end of this message. Right now, I have two friends who serve as leaders in a local church who are being vilified in social media for their practices as leaders in this congregation, their congregation. Rather than allegations being handled in-house by their congregation, they are being tried in the court of public opinion. That court of public opinion now exists in the era of cancel culture, skepticism and conspiracy theories behind everything, and the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcasts. The court of public opinion is always now skeptical about Christian leadership. Putting things in social media as the means to address wrongdoing within a body seems to be the legal equivalent of taking to the court of law a personal offense between two believers. And Paul says, don't do it. That is, rather than pursuing a process of discipline and restoration that pleases Christ and avoids the schemes of the enemy, many in our culture look for the world to shame perpetrators. My friends painfully are being shamed. Paul does not call for public shaming of personal offenders in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Paul does call for grief over sin, removal of the unrepentant from community, judgment from wise persons within a local assembly, rather than allowing the world and the courts of the world to cast judgment, grace toward the repentant sinner, reaffirmation of love, and wisdom toward the plans of the enemy. But he never calls for public shaming. So if you ever feel strongly that this congregation is mishandling a matter of discipline or a matter of restoration, please keep appealing to our elders and to the Lord with great prayer. Please do not run to the public unless you think your running to public can stand up to the all-knowing eyes of Christ and bring him glory both now and when you are standing in his very judging presence. I don't know about you, but I'm scared of Jesus even though I'm covered in his blood. And if that doesn't make sense to you, keep reading 2 Corinthians over to the chapter 5 where Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. It's the or bad part that scares me. I have once submitted to a discipline process when I was not in the wrong. Now, I know that might sound odd to you who are not the peacekeeping types, but to we who are the peacekeeping types, some, some of you might call us nines, to we who are the peacekeeping types, we will put ourselves in the middle of something and claim wrong to make sure relationships are not broken. That seems strange to so, so, so many, but the relationships matter more than being found right. 
Another time, I would not submit to a discipline process when I was in the right because I obtained wise counsel from a seasoned pastor and mentor who told me that in this incident, it would not be right to do so. Both of those experiences took place in high honor and shame communities and context in which pastors were trying to shame me into obedience to their personal preferences and desires and their need to be honored before their people. I lost needed income as my family's sole breadwinner both times. But vindication slowly followed. I'm appealing to you who feel you must blow whistles in the public and cannot work with the process that Paul has outlined here. We must trust God to restore, to vindicate us, and to keep us. Because he will keep us, even though it is not easy for us to do those things. I had many tears in those periods, but I also had a great Christian community surrounding me both times to walk with me through those darkest moments. For some of you who are listening to this, the whole idea that we would give the church this much authority in our lives is repulsive to you. And I know it's repulsive. I had someone come to me after the first congregation and affirm that it is repulsive. It should be repulsive to you if, if the church is simply a human construct. But if the church is Christ's idea from all eternity. If the church is established by his death on the cross and by his rising from the dead, if the church is established by his pouring out of every spiritual blessing upon redeemed people by his spirit, if it is his gathering of those baptized in his name, then the authority given to leaders in his church should not be repulsive. It should be reassuring. It should reassure us that we are participating in something larger than us, led by one who has shaken the cosmos with his entering into the world and changed the course of history by his resurrection from the dead. Restoration and the entire process that accomplishes restoration when carried out properly, reveals Christ. It reveals Christ to us, and it reveals Christ to the world. Let's hope we never need a restorative process for anything here at Calvary Memorial Church. Amen. But if and when we do, let's think about how this whole body, including the offender, will work to please Christ and give plenty of grace. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your love for us. That you don't kick us when we're down.
make us grovel or beg to come back to a place with you, but that you instead in Christ stand with welcome arms waiting for us to turn away from sin back to you so you can put all the past way in the past. Restore and heal today. Comfort and provide grace. Bless your people and give us grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.